welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello and welcome to Fast Talk. I'm your host, Trevor Connor. My co-host, Chris Case, is currently on some remote island in Scotland. So today, you unfortunately have to put up with my attempt at an introduction. Balance. That becomes an increasingly important concept as we get stronger. If you're unfit, just getting off the couch, everything is drainable. Everything can get better. But we reach a point where it's not that simple. We love to look at peak numbers, best 20-minute power, best 5-minute power, best top sprint. But can all these numbers keep rising in unison as we train? The answer is, we hit a point where we have to make sacrifices. Back in episode 67, we talked with Sebastian Weber about the concept of VO2 max and VLA max. Think of them as ways of measuring the max rates of your aerobic system and your anaerobic system. Though to be exact, we're talking about the glycolytic side of the anaerobic system. The big aerobic engine allows you to do things like sit in the field comfortably for hours or put down a good time trial. In the world of cycling, there's no such a thing as too big a VO2 max or too good an aerobic engine. But a big glycolytic system is what allows you to cover moves and win the sprint at the end of the race. The problem is, there's such a thing as too big a VLA max because it can hurt your aerobic engine. So it's a balancing act. And while we love to focus on those peak wattages, an important consideration is to figure out how high or how low a VLA max you need, and that can change for the season. Today we'll dive into this concept and talk about first, VO2 max and VLA max. What exactly do they measure and why are they useful? Second, another term that's becoming very popular is watt prime or functional reserve capacity. It's a valuable number, but a lot of cyclists think it's a measure of our anaerobic strength and confuse it with VLA max. We'll explain the important differences and the values of both. Three, we'll talk about the balancing act of shifting your VLA max depending on your target races. Then we'll try to get a little more practical, starting with the right training for the time trialer GC rider. Fifth, we'll talk about how to train if, like a lot of riders, you focus on road races and need good enough an aerobic engine to get to the end of a three plus hour race, but also need good enough a VLA max to win the sprint. Six, Finally, we'll talk about just how much you can shift your VLA max and why it's not just about making the shift, but learning to use what you have. Our primary guest today is, of course, Sebastian Weber. Sebastian is one of the founders of Inside, a company that uses on-the-road testing to give quite detailed analyses of a rider's physiology. Sebastian has also worked with teams like High Road and riders like Peter Sagan and Tony Martin. I personally love having Sebastian on the show because we go deep into the physiological weeds and also apparently put Chris to sleep. So, I agreed to cut our talk about lactate versus pyruvate transport across the mitochondrial barrier, but don't ask me why. Along with Sebastian, we'll also talk with a pretty incredible group of scientists and writers about this balancing act, including Dr. Steven Seiler from the University of Agder in Norway, who's one of the originators of the polarized training model. We have an episode on interval work coming up with him soon. Next, we asked the opinion of a world-class time trialer and grand tour rider. Brent Bookwater, who now rides with Mitchell and Scott, talked with us about how training for time trials and grand tours affects his sprint. And if you haven't done so already, check out his end-of-season grand fondo, the Bookwalter Binge. Finally, we talked with Dr. Andy Coggin and Hunter Allen, who just put out the third edition of their groundbreaking book, 
training and racing with a power meter. Check out the episode just a couple episodes ago where we talked with the two of them and Dr. Stephen McGregor about training zones. All right, this is where Chris usually says something witty, but he's in Scotland and left me to figure out how to post this thing without the passwords. So maybe we'll make you fast. This episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Whoop. Now, out in the world, you've heard it on Fast Talk before. There's a ton of metrics out there that talk about how hard you've trained, what you've done, your power, your peak numbers. But one of the things that's often lacking in that is your your recovery or that balance. You see one side of it, but you don't often see the other side of it. And Whoop is really cool in that it offers some pretty unique metrics that help you understand that balance. seems like we're always throwing a new metric at people at Fast Talk, so here's some more for you. But these are ones that you aren't going to see a lot of other places. Um, so Whoop gives you a, a score of recovery, a strain score, and a sleep assessment. We keep talking about you need to balance that stress and recovery. That's really where the adaptation happens. This shows them up against one another, shows when your strain is exceeding what your recovery is allowing and vice versa, when you're more in a recovery straight because the strain is low and and recovery is high. Mm -hmm. So it it allows you to see that kind of seesaw balance that you really want to see in your training. And sleep is an important part of that too. Sleep is a key part of recovery that sometimes we forget or we ignore. And and WHOOP is really going to help you find that balance. I think they do a great job of visualizing that data as well in the app you know it's not only is it graphically interesting it's color coded so it's it often makes for a quick read on how hard you've gone how much recovery you've gotten how good your sleep is and it all is it is easily digestible and you can absorb it quickly yeah. and get on with your program whoop is the performance tool that is changing the way people track their fitness and optimize their training Who provides a wrist-worn heart rate monitor that pairs to the app that provides analytics and insights on recovery, strain, and sleep. Know your body is recovered or when it needs rest by getting to know your nervous system through heart rate variability and quality of sleep. Automatically track workouts and get strain scores that let you know how strenuous training was on your body and see even more data like average heart rate, max heart rate, and calories burned. Get optimal sleep times based on how strenuous your day was and track sleep performance with insight into your sleep cycles and stages of sleep, sleep quality, and sleep consistency. Whoop monitors heart rate 100 times per second, 24-7, to give you full insight into your day so you can optimize the way you train. Whoop has provided an offer for Fast Talk listeners to get 15% off their purchase with the code FASTTALK. That's F-A-S-T, capital T-A-L-K. Just go to whoop.com, that's W-H-O-O-P.com, and use the code FASTTALK at checkout to save 15% and optimize the way you train. This episode of the Fast Talk podcast is sponsored by Oatroot. What is Oatroot? Well, it's not a cycling tour, and it's more than a road race. It's a multi-day, Grand Fondo-style event where everyone starts together each morning, and you can ride with friends all day. You can indulge your competitive side on timed sections if you feel like it, and explore iconic cycling destinations around the world. 
Oatroot takes service to the next level with Pro Tour style support on the bike and rider focused amenities off it. Choose from a dozen events in 2019 in France, Italy, Norway, Oman, Mexico, and China. In the United States, there are still entries available for Oatroot Asheville in May, which I will be attending, and Oatroot San Francisco in September. Try something new in 2019. Try Oatroot. Well, thanks again for joining us, Sebastian. We had a lot of great conversation last time with you. We got a lot of great questions from our listeners, as we always do. So in this episode, we really want to dive into some of those questions. Before we get there, maybe you could refresh listeners' memories out there about what we're talking about here, VLA Max, VO2 Max. Give us a, give us a short summary to set up the stage for our discussion. Yeah, thanks. Happy to do that. So basically, we are talking about some something very fundamental. We are talking about energy supply mechanisms. We are asking the question, where is the energy to produce your power output, which you see on the power meter? Where is this energy coming from? And the very short brief overview here is that there are three ways how your muscle can produce energy. And the one way is by breaking down creatine phosphate, which is happening every time you change intensity, basically, creating phosphate is broken down and it's replenished afterwards. So we kind of, for simplification, we leave this out of the picture. And then the remaining two is two metabolic ways to create energy, which is one is called glycolysis, which basically breaks down glucose and creates a pyruvate or lactate. And the other one is called the aerobic metabolism, which obviously uses oxygen to burn things like the pyruvate or lactate that comes out of the glycolysis. And the marker, the marker for the capacity or more precisely the, the energy production rate of the aerobic system is called the VO2 max. And let me explain really briefly where this term comes from. It's basically a V with a dot, so it's a flux rate of oxygen. This is where the O2 comes from. And then it's max. So VO2 max, maximum flux rate of O2. And I think it's important to understand why are we using this? Well, basically, nobody is really interested in what is your oxygen uptake rate is. The point is that we know that the amount of oxygen uptake is absolutely proportional to the amount of energy or, so to see, power production in the muscle, in the aerobic system. So it's just a marker. It's just a marker. You know, we cannot stick any kind of sensor into the mitochondria, into the muscle, and measure energy production directly in the aerobic system. But we know that oxygen uptake rate is absolutely proportional to that. And this is already then the explanation or kind of the same explanation for the VLMX. In the glycolysis and the anaerobic energy production, you break down glucose, produce pyruvate slash lactate, and there's energy production associated with it. And the production rate of lactate is absolutely proportional to the production of energy in this glycolytic anaerobic system. And there's where the name comes from, V with a dot, so again, a flux rate, LA for lactate max, maximum lactate production rate, maximum glycolytic energy production. That's what we talked about. The next question becomes, what's the important thing to, to, to realize about VLA max when it comes to a sport like cycling? So the thing that, that is important to understand about VLMAX and that really differentiates it from, from VO2MAX, it is not as simple as high is better or low is better. You know, VO2MAX is like very straightforward, the higher the better, right? Bigger engine, always better, more aerobic energy production, doesn't, does never hurt. 
right? Because VLM Axe is a little bit different. You can, of course, say, well, I want to maximize my anaerobic power output. I want to maximize the system, right? And do whatever you can to increase your VLM Axe, right? Or be happy that you're naturally gifted and it is high, so to speak. So you, you increase your glycolytic energy production, you increase your sprint power, maximum power output. That's great. But the other side of the metal or the other side of the coin, so to speak, is that if you have a higher VLM axe, physiologically, biologically, this means you have a higher ability to produce lactate by breaking down glucose. What now happens is that in any sub-maximum conditions, so any conditions, intensity sub-sprint, which means endurance performance, this system of glycolysis, this system of breaking down glucose and producing lactate is more in the forefront of things. It is stronger, it is more dominant, so to speak. So what this means in a practical application, if your VLM max is higher, you not only increase your sprint power or your anaerobic power output, you also increase your glucose gl utilization because this system only uses glucose as a source of energy, so carbohydrates, long story short. Right. So you increase your, your glucose or carbohydrate utilization, and by this, you increase your lactate production, which if this which essentially lowers your anaerobic threshold or FDP, whatever you want to call that. So this is also one explanation why you can't have both. You can't be the best sprinter in the world and still win the GC in the Tour de France. Because to be the best sprinter, you need a tremendously high glycolytic anaerobic energy production. But to win the Tour de France, you need a high anaerobic threshold and a low glucose or carbohydrate utilization rate and the high fat combustion rate. So in a nutshell, VLA max is not higher the better, except when you are 100 meter, um, you know, track and field sprinter. With VLA max, it's like a sweet spot, which, which you want to have. We've had this conversation before, and it's something I always like to point out is when you are talking about your best sprinter, and, and Chris is going to argue with me on this, but I'll still say this. When you're talking about even your best sprinters at the Tour de France, if you put them up against a pure track sprinter, they're going to lose. Sure. For example, Greipel puts out an absolutely amazing sprint at the end of a long stage of the Tour de France, but he still has to get through that five hours to get to that finishing sprint. So there still needs to be a balance. Right. And this is something, if you look very closely at the, at, at the, at the Vulture Cycling, you can see that the, the really super fast sprinter of the fast sprinters, like a Kittel or a Greipel, like the big, you know, the big engines, so to speak, a Cavendish, you know, for, 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 his, for his size, he has a big power output. They really benefit a lot from being protected. They need to be protected a lot to not ride above their limit before they open the sprint, right? While if you if you have a little bit more on the endurance side, a little bit lower VLMX, like a Sagan type of rider or a Christoph kind of rider, then you might lack a little bit, or I know because I've tested them all, you have a little bit lower VLMX, but therefore you have a little bit higher endurance capacity to simplify things. And therefore, you maybe lack a little bit of sprint power. You might still beat the Kittles and the Gripples out there um, because you're maybe more fresh when the sprint starts. But when you put them, like you say, on a clean sprint next to each other and you put, for example, a track sprinter next to them, it's a very clear, uh, clear decision who wins and who comes second, who comes third. I still remember being at a track and there, we had his world-class pure track sprinter there and looking at his bike. And he had this chain that looked more like a motorcycle chain on his bike. And I asked him about it. And he just said, I would snap a normal chain. 
Right. I mean, you see, you see power outputs well above 2,000 watts, and especially you see a much higher torque, a much higher acceleration, and also a higher average power output, which then accounts more for the speed then, you know, to be able to keep this power longer, so to speak. To, to stay above 2,000 watts for a longer time is something essentially important here. So yeah, there's um, tremendous differences. So to, so to give you some ballpark numbers, if you want to run... If you want to run 100 meters sub 10 seconds, like in a track and field athlete, you need a VLMX of approximately 1.0 at like 85 kilograms body weight. Otherwise, that's not possible. And then a Tour de France sprinter is more in the range of 0 0.8, 0 0.7, 0.9, somewhere in this range. And then a classic rider is like almost like half of it, depending on what kind of rider, like 0 0.4, 0 0.5, something in that ballpark. So the more you go to, towards endurance rider, the lower the number gets. Chris and I had a chance to ask Dr. Steven Seiler about the physiology behind VO2 max versus VLA max. He had a great way of explaining why we hit a point where we have to choose. At least at the extremes, uh, I think probably there, there's some absolute truth in that, that, you know, if we look at extreme performers like the, the sprinters on the track versus the, the, the classic guys, six hours, there are some differences and, and we even see that in the pro tour that guys who start out really good at, at sprinting they may over some years lose their top end power as they get better at being able to handle a 270 kilometer classic so i suspect he's right I, I think there are some subtle if you're really tweaking the extremes then then muscle mass and so forth are going to play a role in your ability to produce maximum power but how he's how we measure maximum rate of lactate production or so forth I, i'm not sure how that, that actually works uh, but but i get the idea you know whatever that anaerobic the maximum anaerobic uh, energy rate of product or production rate versus maximizing aerobic capacity at some point they 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 probably do conflict with each other that's fair. And what do you think physiologically is going on? Why do you feel that is? Well, you know, a cell, a muscle cell is a, is a, a set of structures and there's some engineering there. There's just like in building a car or a house or whatever, you, you make some trade-offs, weight versus, uh, you know, stiffness and all this stuff. Well, in this muscle cell, you, you have a finite volume and then you're going to fill it with different components like muscle fibers like mitochondria, like intracellular fluid and proteins that may have uh, buffering functions. So there is some mix there. And within a big range, that mix can do a lot of different things. But if you want to really maximize, for example, power, then the, the set of or the ratio of components in the fiber would be different than if you want to maximize endurance or aerobic. Uh, endurance. So does that make sense? At, yeah. at some point you get down to a structural level of what can you pack into the cell and something has to go if you're going to have more of this other. If you're going to have more fibers, more, uh, then you're going to have to give up something like mitochondria. So that's why you're saying at, at the extremes, you, you're going to see this polarization because when you're talking about somebody who's very unfit, they can just improve the overall machinery in probably all oh, yeah. regards. But once you're at a certain fitness level, you, you really need to, uh, the muscle fibers are going to have to specify one, one way or the other. Yeah, at, at, at the extremes, yeah. So Usain Bolt, you know, those guys, that level, 
then there is not an advantage to him to train more, you know, because he doesn't want to signal changes in his uh, some of the contractile characteristics of his muscles. He doesn't want them to develop in the direction of more endurance because that will cost him uh, at the extremes of contraction velocity, for example. So, yeah, at those extremes, it gets tricky. But for most of us, we can improve both over over a pretty big range. So there's no reason to feel like that you are unable to adapt both in terms of, you know, handling a a sprint and handling the, the three or four hours getting to the sprint. There is another side of the VLA max definition that we need to cover. Many riders, when they think of their anaerobic energy pathways, think of functional reserve capacity or watt prime. Let's get back to the show where we define these concepts and explain why they actually aren't a measure of your anaerobic strength. So what I like about your your use of VO2 max and VLA max, and I, we got asked by a lot of people about this after our, our previous episode with you, is that at this point, everybody really understands what VO2 max is. That's your maximal ability to produce power aerobically or your maximal ability to consume oxygen. And I don't think anybody has a hard time understanding that. What they were struggling a little bit was with that VLA max. I, I try to explain to people, VLA max is the VO2 max equivalent for your anaerobic system. Yes, absolutely. Or more precisely for your glycolytic system. Yes, exactly. And... I think a lot of people have seen FRC or Watt Prime as being that anaerobic equivalent to uh, VO2 max, but it's not. No. And so I actually got into a bit of a, a Twitter discussion a, a couple Sundays ago with one of our, our listeners talking about the difference between VLA max and, and Watt Prime. And a lot of people listening might be more familiar if you're using training peaks with something called uh, functional reserve capacity, FRC, which is essentially the, the same thing as, as Watt Prime. And the, the way I explained it, but definitely wanted to, to hear this from you, is VLA max, we're, we're talking about a maximal rate, where Watt Prime is more a, a, a capacity. It's literally the area under the curve above uh, critical power, which I, I think I just lost 99% of our listeners saying that. But one of the important differences here is VLA max is looking purely at that anaerobic system. It's, it's lactate production, where Watt prime isn't just anaerobic. Some of that energy, some of that capacity is coming from aerobic metabolism, correct? Yeah, uh, I can totally agree to both. Let me add on this real quick. So VLA max and FRC slash Watt prime or W prime is the same basically as power and energy. VLMAX is basically a power and you can transform it into power output on the bike. It's possible to transform it into watts instead of millimoles per second. And FRC or W prime is like the kilojoules which you see on your bike computer. So one is a capacity and one is the same thing divided by the time. Absolutely right. And also right is that VLMAX or glycolytic power is, a, is only looking at the power produce or energy production rate, so power production in the glycolytic anaerobic system, while, as you say, what prime or FRC is basically only saying this is the amount of energy you can put out riding above critical power FTP threshold, whatever you want to call it, until exhaustion. And for me, most important misunderstanding is that people think that something like FRC or what prime is anaerobic. And it is 
not. Like you say, it is a mixture of energy systems, and this mixture changes. And it's <laughs> it's it should be so easy to understand that if you have a two-minute effort, it's much, much more anaerobic, right? So let's say you have a certain amount of energy, uh, two-minute all-out effort, right? And you subtract basically the power output or the energy that is related to your critical power FTP threshold, whatsoever. And you have a 10-minute or 20-minute effort. And again, you have a certain energy and you subtract what is coming from or what is related to FTP critical power threshold or so on. So the energy composition, the composition of what prime or FRC changes tremendously over time. And for a cycling-specific effort of like four, five, six, seven minutes, the vast majority of all the energy of FRC or what prime is actually aerobic. That's, that's what people don't understand mostly is that if you have whatever FRC what prime and you spread it out, you put this out, you empty this tank over eight or 10 minutes, something like maybe 80 or 90% maybe of this energy is aerobic. It's not nothing to do with anaerobic system or not a lot. It's, it's a mix of aerobic and anaerobic metabolism. Right. So it's just, it's, it's it can be a useful metric, but it's not, it's not a pure anaerobic metric. No, it is, it is, and again, it, 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 the longer the effort, the less anaerobic it is. And it's a fundamental difference. Like you say, it is a capacity. It's a total energy. And going back to your example, like VO2max, right? It is milliliters per minute. So it is a flux rate. It is like a power production. It is, it is basically asking the question. Here's my explanation. It's like, it's like how many miles you get per gallon, right? Or how, like, what is the maximum fuel burning rate of your car if you put you know pedal to the metal so to speak right how fast can you empty the tank and that's the one question that is like your vla max and then your frc or whatever is how big is the tank to oversimplify things right this is the main this is the main main difference here right and nothing has to do which which is like the one thing has ne not necessarily anything to do with the other one completely independent so in that conversation I was having with, with the listener on Twitter, I actually used almost the same analogy. I actually used the analogy of a jar. And I said, FRC is the size of your jar. And VLA max is the size of the opening. Of one opening. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you have two openings. You have the aerobic opening and the glycolytic opening, so to speak, on this jar. That's an excellent example, actually. Right? You have these two openings. Right? And how much of your FRC goes out on the one side, on the aerobic side, and how much goes out on the other side can differ or differs depending on the effort, depending on your training status, depending on what kind of athlete you are, right? That's what it is. It's a jar with two openings, so to speak. Yeah. And I think this is a really important distinction. I mean, it might sound like we're splitting hairs a little bit, but it is a very, when you're talking about a performance, a very important distinction because I'll use myself as an example. I am the worst sprinter in the world. I think a, on a good day, a kid on a tricycle could beat me in a sprint. But if you go into WKO and you look at my FRC, I actually have a really good FRC. Um, so going with your, your gas tank analogy, I have a, or, or the jar analogy, I have a really big jar. <laughs> um, but if you take that jar and flip it over, my VLA max, so that particular opening is so small, it's just a trickle that comes out. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a great capacity. I can't use it. Well, you take your time to use it, you know? Don't stress right. it. <laughs> when you were talking about all the, the pro athletes you've tested and worked with, I'm just curious, 
how much you work with what they naturally have versus trying to shape them to, into the right type of rider they want to be? Well, as a pro rider, you're not trying to shape them that much, right? Because they are already in a team as a designated, you know, sprinter or lead out man or classic rider or GC rider. So you're not you're not trying to change it a lot. There are some examples, though, where you see in general uh, the VLMX being a limiting factor or a factor with, uh, where, where, where you see um, room for improvement. There are some examples where you see a rider and you say, oh, in general, I think the VLMX of this rider should be a little bit higher, should be a little, little bit lower. That's one possibility. And then the most common possibility is that you see a change during the season then you then adjust the training. If you see it goes up, it goes down in an extent where you don't want it to be. Like, for example, most common one of the most common examples is in a sprinter, in a griper type of rider. It would go down during the season, right? With all the spring classics and the stage races, and it would go down, and he, will, he would lose sprint power. And then you have to change the training and, and bring it up again. Whereas with another rider, um, you know, you might want to bring it down a bit, right? It might be a little bit too high. You might say, okay, you know, for this extra 20 watts or 10 watts of threshold power and for this extra little bit of higher fat combustion and, and, and carbohydrate sparing, you want to bring it down again. This is what you're doing actually in a, in a year of, of training or in, in the training process. You monitor it and then you do some kind of, I would not call it definitely fine tuning, but you, you know, within what type of rider you have, you're trying to manipulate it by training to increase or decrease it a little bit. So I remember when you gave a presentation, and, and maybe with your permission, we can post this on the website with this episode. You had a, a graph of Sagan's season. I think this was a 2013 or 2014, somewhere around then. And you graphed his VO2 max and his VLA max through the season. And as, as I remember you describing it, you said, basically, we, we want to try to get that VO2 max as high as we can. There, there's never an issue with having a high VO2 max for, for a cyclist. So it was really trying to raise that. But then through the season, you really saw his VLA max rise and drop depending on, on which races he was going to and, and what mix he needed to perform best at those races. And I found that really fascinating. Is that something you can talk a little to? The one graph you're talking about, it wasn't Peter, so it wasn't Sagan. It was was another rider, but doesn't matter. Yeah, it was it was looking at the at the development of U2 Max and VLMX, and in comparison, threshold power over uh, over one season at different times of the season. And what you what you would see in this graph is basically that. Yeah, you're trying to sustain a high level of VO2 max, obviously, like you said, uh, the bigger, the better. And then the VLMX might change during the season because you, you go like to training camps and races and so on and so forth. And then at a certain time of the season, we would basically had to pull out the rider out of the race program and simplify and saying, press the reset button here, right? Because VLMX was, was decreasing to an extent where you say, okay, now it would harm the performance of the rider. And that's not something very uncommon to do. Like we have, for example, a, a, a webinar on our website from, from Team Bora, there are some, some examples where they have similar scenarios from sprinters who are, you know, had very, very successful seasons winning multiple stages where it also comes down to the, to the fine tuning of these metrics. The other thing that might be interesting when you look at this graph and you look at the development as a trajectory of VO2 max and VLA max, you can see that sometimes this threshold doesn't change. 
right? So you have these scenarios where basically the glycolytic and the aerobic system, so the VLA max and the VO2 max go up together or go down together. And then because they behave in a similar direction, the threshold power does not really change. And what this means in a practical application is that the rider still has endurance, right? The, the FTP is there, the endurance power is there, but you're kind of, so to speak, missing the top notch of both energy supply mechanisms. He doesn't have the top end power, neither in his aerobic system nor in his glycolytic system to really perform well. And that's something you can see after hard training camps, but especially after, after hard races like the Tour de France. And that's one example, which is in the graph, is that you know, after the Tour de France, the threshold power does not really change. So you can send this athlete to several races, right? And he will survive it. But aerobic system and glycolytic system both are down. And therefore, he's not winning anything anymore. One of the, one of the things I was curious about what you said when it came to this, um, there's a sweet spot when it comes to VLA max. And there's a, a given range where you'll look at a, a rider's uh, data and say, okay, he's still within that range. He's, he can go about racing and, and training the same way he has, or he falls outside of that range that you're looking at. And you're like, okay, we need to pull him out of the racing, pull him out of training and, and push that reset button. I'm, I'm just curious, how do you determine what that sweet spot is? Yeah. So this depends on what kind of races the rider wants to do and how he wants to do it. There are two simple scenarios, or maybe only one simple scenario almost, which is like the GC kind of rider. There's, I only had it once in 10 years where the VLMX was too low for a GC kind of rider. And it was so low that he was not able to follow an attack. Mm -hmm. Then it's too low. But in general, it's not that kind of big of a problem. How you determine what is the what is a good range? Well, as high as needed, as low as possible, right? So this 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 means that for a classic race or for one day race, where you maybe want to follow some attacks, uh, maybe want to do a breakaway, or maybe need to outsprint other riders from a from a breakaway, it's maybe not advisable to have a super high VLMX because you maybe then you don't have the endurance capacity to stay in the breakaway group till the end. You still need a certain amount of glycolytic power, anaerobic power, VLMX to outsprint the others. So it really depends a lot on what type of rider you are and what technically you want to do, so to speak. Uh, how are you playing your cards in the race? This, this determines it a lot. And then, of course, the race. If you have, a, like in the World Tour or something, if you have a race with you know, a lot of climbing, is it a long climb? Like, do you have 10K final climb or you have several shorter ones where, because they are shorter, you, you, you push harder, you push higher power, and therefore you need a certain amount of glycolytic energy. So it's not a, sorry, but it's not, a, it's not that one simple answer, really. It really depends on, on what you're looking for. I can give you some ballpark numbers, though. So a ballpark number would be most of the GC riders are in the ballpark of 0.3, which is millimoles per liters per second, right? And then like the classic riders, Depending on what kind of rider, it's more in the ballpark of 0.45 to maybe 0.6, but 0.6 already being more, I'm not, I'm not saying sprinter, but like the more punchy guys. Mm -hmm. And then the pure sprinters end up somewhere in the ballpark of 0.75 to 0.85, somewhere in this range. When you see a number which is a little bit too high or a little bit too low for what you want your rider to do, 
then it tells you immediately where the room for improvement is. So one of my examples is when, when, when Tony Martin turned professional in 2008, we tested his VLMX. I mean, this is as far as this goes back, right, to high road times where we use this only like to scout our riders and train our riders. We tested him and we've seen that his VLMX is a little bit too high for world-class time trial performance. And then the nice thing is you can calculate how much his threshold power, how much his FTP, whatever you want to call it, power, would increase if you manage to lower his VLMX. So when he turned professional, we could already project that his threshold power would go up by almost 10%. And we were pretty sure that we were able to reduce his VLMX in the next coming years. That's that's one part of the story what, what basically happened, right? His VLMX dropped and step by step his threshold goal went up. And if you look at his TT results, for example, in the world championships, you will see that he was slowly working his way up, right? From becoming top being in the top ten, becoming fourth, becoming third to finally become world champion. There is kind of, you know, this ability where you really really are able to quantify how much potential, how much improvement in terms of numbers, in terms of what is lying in increasing or decreasing VLMX. I recently spoke with Brent Bookwalter, a pro tour rider with Michelton Scott. As a past winner of the National Time Trial Championships and someone who's raced many grand tours, Brent has needed to focus on building that big anaerobic threshold and also his fat-burning aerobic engine. But I asked him if he felt that sort of training came at the cost of a good sprint. Do you find that, that building the sort of fitness you need as a time trialer would hurt your ability in a sprint, or do you think you can improve both? Yeah, that's a complicated question. I think my, my sort of knee-jerk response to that, my, my hesitancy with, with like going too far down that road is I think too often us riders, and maybe especially amateurs, you know, pigeonhole themselves or, or take away a chance from their self. They say that just what you said, I'm... I've been working on my sprint. I know I'm a sprinter. I know I have a fast twitch guy. Therefore, I can't perform in time trials. And I think that's just a that's a frustrating and huge injustice, I think. And I see it happen all the time. Um, oh, I'm a climber. I can't sprint. Okay, maybe that is the, the physiological sort of facts or predispositions. But there's a lot I think we can do with our physiology um, and a lot we can do with our training and a lot we can do with just sort of the day-to-day execution and, and even mentality of of what we're, what we're working with when it comes time for performance. So I guess I'd like to sort of preface the, this whole debate with that. Just encourage people to not lose sight of the, uh, the potential for versatility, regardless of what you're working on or what you think theoretically is your, your best strength. Yeah, but that said, that I think there is something to that. I mean, I think there is not don't mean to contradict myself, but there, you know, there is obviously, I think, some science to that. And there is some real world ap- application to that. And I'm, if I just speak from my personal experience, and if I look think look and think back at my career, where I've excelled at different points in my career, and where I've been strong or weak in different areas, um, and I think there is it is naturally that there is going to be a little bit of a give and take and a little bit of a slide. I think when if I look at the times when I'm really climbing the best and doing long sustained you know threshold climbs at my best level. Um, and that usually involves also being a little lighter and leaner. Probably my sprinting ability is, is not what it could have been in the beginning of the year when I'm fresher or maybe, you know, five or 10 years ago when I was younger. But that doesn't mean that I, I, still, don't, I still don't leave my mind open to performances in those other areas. 
So would it be accurate to say for a lot of us who are nowhere near our peak potential, we really can improve both. But if, if you are at the highest level or you're near your peak, you, you probably can't be the best of both. I think that's a pretty fair assessment. Yeah, exactly. I think it's it's similar to, um, yeah, if you, if you just take an untrained person, it's like those those initial early gains are kind of easy to get across the board. And then obviously the more trained and the more honed in you get, the harder those, those gains become. So I think um, it does sort of operate on a spectrum. I think, yeah, it's probably not realistic that at the level I'm racing, the, of course, there's always exceptions to this rule and there's, you know, sort of a uh, alien forms out there that can sort of seem to do it all. But um, it's very uncommon that, the true world-class sprinters are also going to be flying up the mountains with the best climbers and cross over to time trials. Let's get back to the show and discuss the practical side of balancing VLA max, starting with what a time trial or GC rider such as Brent should do. So let's get into those, those practical sides and taking that example, you, you have an athlete who is focused on time trials or being a GC rider and their VLA max is, is too high. What sort of training would you have them do? What did you have Tony Martin do? Well, for the VLMX, you have to differentiate between what I would call more like a functional adaptation and a structural adaptation. You can have pretty quick functional adaptation, for example, by significantly manipulating the nutrition, like, you know, just cutting out uh, almost every kind of carbohydrates, lower the VLMX, but then as soon as you as you go back to normal fuel, so to speak, it flips back. Right. And then the structural change of things, I think it's important to understand that the VLMX and the glycolytic energy production is also linked to your muscle fiber types, right? Fast twitch fibers versus slow twitch fibers. So when you want to have a structural change, you need to change the ability of your fibers. I'm not going to say, oh, you need to entirely change your fiber type, but you need to adapt those fast twitch fibers to become a little bit less glycolytic and a little, a little bit more aerobic. That is a general concept. And to do that, well, the first rule, if you want to decrease your VLMX, don't do anything that increases it, right? Don't do anything that contradicts what you're trying to do. It's, it, it might sound silly, but it is really what it is. Like I've seen people in the past who are trying to decrease their VLMX and then go into the gym three times a week doing, you know, doing squats or leg press with really heavy weight and high speed, so to speak, which is absolutely opposite, right? It's a, it's a high glycolytic or anaerobic effort. So first thing is avoid anything that would increase it. And then the mechanism is you need to trigger those a little bit more fast twitch fibers, so to speak, and they have a higher recruitment threshold. So you can't only go easy, right? We tried that about almost 15 years back, right? I developed a test to measure VLMX using ergometer tests. We use muscle biopsies to validate this test. And then we trained athletes because the questions come up, okay, how do we train that? And the first idea was, yeah, just go easy, right? Just don't touch your glycolysis. The problem is now you're not recruiting the muscle fibers which are responsible for VLMX. So long story short, your intensity needs to be a little bit higher, more towards what you might call sweet spot or sub-threshold or something. And then you need to stay there for some good amount of time repeatedly or uh, continuously. That's that's what's important. So the intensity can't be too low, should be a little bit sub-threshold. You know, you can, you can do some things like lowering the cadence, like which increases the torque, which then again recruits more FT fibers if you are a sub-threshold. And a little bit the icing on the cake would be would be going 
a little bit lower with carbohydrate supplementation. So the, the prime example, which is uh, you know, which which helps you to to decrease VLMX for sure is riding the Tour de France. <laughs> when the sprinter yeah. rides the Tour de France, well, you know, it's three weeks, so it's continuous, right? That's another thing which is important, not like only riding at the weekend and then not doing anything. It's continued. It's day in, day out. That's one thing. It's never glycogen replenished, right? It's never full of carbohydrate stores. And there's a lot of riding, like through the mountains and so on. There's a lot of riding with a slightly lower cadence, so slightly higher torque, and so like this mid-range sweet spot subthreshold power zone for mountain up, down, up, down, so again and again. So that would be something, right? To go into a four-hour ride and every half an hour on and off subthreshold sweet spot with, uh, with lowered cadence. Do this day in, day out, and you have a fair, fair chance to decrease your threshold, your VLMX. Now, you're saying sub-threshold sweet spot. Are you saying pretty significantly below or just below threshold? But that depends on how, how, how much time you can invest, right? If you're going for a six-hour ride and every half an hour you want to ride sub-threshold for 30 minutes, then you have to be more below threshold, right? And if you're only doing this for two hours, then maybe 90% of threshold is okay. If you want to do this for five hours, then you maybe need to go at 80 or 75% of threshold, right? So it depends, obviously, for how long you can do this and how often are you doing this. So I remember we uh, we had uh, Dr. Inigo San Milan on the show a while back, and he was talking a lot about this, about that recruiting the, those fast-twitch um, two B5s to work more aerobically. And he was big on training right at aerobic threshold or VT1 or you know, there's a variety of different names for it, but right at that point where, where lactate starts to, to, to rise up. So around kind of 1.7 to two millimoles on, on a lactate curve. And he was a big fan of just riding there for four or five hours if you can do it, because that's really going to get those fast switch muscle fibers working aerobically. So it sounds like you're saying if you have the time, that's a great way to do it. If you don't have the time, then then higher intensity, closer to threshold, lower cadence can be really beneficial. Am, am I hearing you right? Mm, not entirely. First, like first increase of lactate. Phew, that's very tough because when you do this statement, you immediately bond yourself to 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 a certain testing protocol which is fair like this this power output at which lact which is the power but at which lactate increases is tremendously different if you do one minute increments or 10 minute increments no that's fair and to that credit when we had a new go on here part of what we were talking about was that his testing protocol and he uses a 10 minute testing protocol because he is huge on the aerobic side okay but anyway, so assuming for me, this sounds like this sounds like a quite low intensity. And as I as I indicated, we've done that, and we've done that looking and doing muscle biopsies, and we've done that looking at adapt adaptations in single muscle fibers. And for some people, it works. But if you have a reasonably high amount of those FT fibers, then it may be doesn't really work. And one part of the mechanism is that you can stay lower with an intensity because over the time, like you said, you brought up something like five hours, your ST fibers fatigue, and then you would right. also recruit more FT fibers. But that then you are back to, you know, being in the need to really ride those five hours. And I doubt that this is really applicable for most of your listeners out there. So, 
so again, for for what we did uh, there with a couple of amateur athletes um, over 30 looking at specific adaptation and single muscle fibers, if you go too low intensity, you have a fair chance that it's not working for a big part of your group. If you go a little bit higher of intensity, then you have okay. a very good chance that it almost works for everybody. And therefore, I would say, if you really want to lower VLMX, don't stay too low. And we've seen it um, also like from a lot of users of, of, of the Insights software in the past months. It seems to be like a common misunderstanding people still have, like saying, oh, yeah, yeah I don't want to decrease VLMX. I just write easy. And then they are surprised that four months later, VLMX may be even increased. No, so it's also interesting because when you're talking about lactate clearance, your, your max rate of lactate clearance doesn't actually happen at threshold. It happens right around 95% of threshold. It's a little bit below. I don't have the studies in front of me. I'll put the references up with, with this podcast. But there were several studies that showed that your your body's maximal ability to take up lactate is actually a little below threshold. Yeah, um, it for sure is below threshold, yes. So it, it's very interesting you're saying that, that there is this huge benefit of training a little lower down. Whoop is the performance tool that is changing the way people track their fitness and optimize their training. Whoop provides a wrist-worn heart rate monitor that pairs to their app to provide analytics and insights on things like recovery, strain, and sleep. Know when your body is recovered or when it needs rest by getting to know your nervous system through heart rate variability and quality of sleep. Automatically track workouts and get strain scores to let you know how strenuous training was on your body and see even more data like average heart rate, max heart rate, and calories burned. Get optimal sleep times based on how strenuous your day was and track sleep performance with insights into things like your sleep cycles and stages of sleep, sleep quality, and sleep consistency. Whoop monitors heart rate 100 times per second, 24 seven to give you full insight into your day so you can optimize the way you train. Whoop has provided an offer for our listeners to get 15% off their purchase with the code FASTTALK. That's F-A-S-T, capital T-A-L-K. Just go to whoop.com. That's W-H-O-O-P.com and use the code FASTTALK to save 15% and optimize the way you train. So that all seems pretty simple when we're talking about the time trials of GC Rider. Uh, it seems like you're saying it's all about raising sustainable threshold power and who really cares about VLA Max? It's just not something you need. But a lot of us aren't GC riders or time trialists. For, you know, I would say most of us, particularly a lot of our listeners, and I know for myself, we're doing road races where we have to have the aerobic engine to get to the end of the race. But we still need some sort of VLA max or we're going to get our butts kicked in that final few Ks. So for this type of rider, which probably applies to a lot of us, what do we do? Increasing the VLA max... Again, the, the funny, simple answer is avoid anything that decreases it. And this is maybe not as easy as the opposite direction because decreasing it is, again, being low in carbohydrates, riding, you know, whatever, through the mountains, sub-threshold, low-cadence kind of efforts. So that's maybe not so easy. And also, in general, very, very broadly speaking, all kinds of endurance effort have the ability to decrease your VLMX. Even like long sprints or something have the ability to decrease your VLMX. But always the question where you're coming from. 
right? Uh, so that's important to understand. If you're asking about what do I do to, to increase my VLMX, it's a question, where are you coming from? Are you just coming off your couch? Then mostly any training might actually decrease your VLMX. Are you just coming out of a couple of months uh, base endurance, sweet spot, long, slow distance, whatsoever training, right? That's a totally different question. That's important to understand that it's it's not that straightforward like, oh, yeah, this is a one-size-fits-all approach here. But in general, avoid everything that decreases it. And then when we talked a little bit before, maybe like decreasing VLMX was more like your kind of sweet spot training kind of approach, sub-threshold, mid-range intensity stuff. When you want to increase VLMX, again, you should avoid that. And then you are maybe ending up more with like this kind of a polarized training philosophy. Because you really want to avoid these mid-range intensity. You either want to work very low. So don't touch your FT fibers, right? Don't touch them. Don't recruit them. Don't put any kind of endurance signal onto them. Or hit them really hard to become better at anaerobic lycolytic energy production. So that's what it is. It would be training really, really easy and doing sprints, weight training, explosive gym training, so on and so forth. And if you look at the classic training of like track sprinters that's what it is they ride very very easy if they do kind of some kind of endurance training or they just do the hard gym and sprint training programs and so that's that's basically the answer to that if you really need to increase it make sure you do nothing that decreases it and focus on really the low end and really the high end from my personal opinion this might partly explain you also why you have this two training philosophies and why you have people out there who swear by polarized training because they have great experience with it. And you might have other people who swear by more like sweet spot training because they have good experience with it. And, you know, it triggers two totally different adaptations. And depending on what you're trying to achieve, one might work for you very good and the other might do exactly the opposite. So I was about to go there and I was actually going to ask you that question because after we did the previous episode with you, one of our listeners said he recommended a, a whole lot of that big gear training below threshold and, and that sweet spot range. How does that fit with the polarized model? And so you, you've just answered that, that polarized might give you more of that higher VLA max, but still ability to, to get to the end. Where if you're the, the, the more the time trial type who doesn't care about a sprint at the end, that that perhaps a more sweet spot approach is, is the right approach for you. Right. Exactly. Do, do a lot of people come up to you and say, I want to be like Peter Sagan. I want to have <laughs> like a really good sprint, but not the best sprint. But I also want to be able to ride a, a really long race and still have that sprint at the end. I mean, I, I realize that there's more, way more to it. And there's, there's, the, the skills that he brings to it, his, his ability to conserve energy all day. But in terms of just pure performance parameters, I would assume that a lot of people just because he's such a star and he's so good, they want to be like him. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, you get this question like, yeah, what is the physiology of this rider, of that rider? And of course, what is the physiology? What kind of ballpark is Peter Sagan in, in terms of VLMX and so on and so forth? And Obviously, he's he's somewhere in the mid-range towards being a sprinter, right? Because he can sprint, but he can still be very, very successful in the classics. I know his coach then specifically um, prescribes a training with obviously is focusing a little bit more on the endurance side when it comes about going to the classics and then a little bit more on the sprint side for the second part of the season or 
the, the, the part afterwards when it comes to the to the Tour de France. So within your range, let's say whatever, if you have a VLMX of 0.5, you know, you want to go more like to a stage race kind of thing or do some TTs, you can maybe decrease it or you maybe want to do, do a training to decrease it to 0.4 or something, 0.35 within a couple of months. And then you maybe want to go backwards afterwards or, or go the opposite direction to increase it because you maybe have some more like crit races coming up or some flat road races where you need to sprint. And now basically you're really talking very specifically about what kind of training you want to do because when you know this number, like when you know what your VLMX is and you know it's better for this kind of race to have it rather a little bit lower or this kind of race have it a little bit higher, higher now you can work on it and, and you can control it and see how the training helps you developing towards towards that goal. And that's something very important, right? I mean, it's like it's like you would try to decrease body weight, right? Uh, doing a diet and, and lose a couple of kilograms. But basically what you do, you would do the same. You would hop on the scale and control the progress of this, right? And control where you're going. Now, it sounds like you're also saying that with VLA Max, to some degree, you might be able to improve it a bit, but you, you kind of have what you have. If you're not gifted with a naturally high VLA Max, track sprinting is probably not for you. I mean, most of what you've been talking about is either promoting the, the decrease in your VLA Max or limiting the losses, Right. Yeah. You can, you cannot expect like if you, if you come up and you get tested with a VLMX of let's say 0.3, so more like your GC kind of rider, you cannot expect that you do a training program and neither after two months or after two years, you end up as 0.8. That is most likely impossible. And the opposite is also true, right? If you are 0.8, then the only way to maybe get down to 0.3 is by getting 20 or 30 years older, right? So, right. but then it's a question of it's by training or just by aging. But in general, like, yeah, you're absolutely right. You cannot, you cannot expect it to change it entirely. You, you want to change it in a certain direction, but you are a little bit what you are, right? If you are more the sprinter kind of guy, you don't maybe get it to sub 0.3. And if you are more this endurance, you know, 0.3 kind of guy, you maybe don't get it up to 0.8 or something. When we were talking with Dr. Andy Coggin and Hunter Allen about training zones, we asked them their thoughts on this balance between VLA max and VO2 max. They had some very interesting thoughts on why it's hard to maximize both and also difficult to shift your balance. We talked to him about VLA max versus FRC. And one of the things he said is FRC is a capacity. VLA max is a rate. Um, and VLA max is, is a pure anaerobic measure. So again, do you have any, any thoughts about that? I certainly read in your book, your explanation of FRC, which agreed that FRC is not purely anaerobic. And he's right that uh, FRC is a capacity and whatever he's calculating seems to be an attempt to get at a rate. So they'd be different in that regard uh, as well. Sounds like a sharp guy. <laughs> he was quite smart. What's your... What you're feeling on this idea that you know, what he says is you, you can't get, maximize both, that there is a bit of a seesaw here where if you really want to have that top end anaerobic power, you're going to have to sacrifice some of your FTP or your threshold. Or if you want to be a time trialer and have a, a higher FTP, you have to sacrifice some of that, that anaerobic side. How do you feel about that? The way you put it, you can't maximize both might uh, be the best way. You can certainly improve both at the same time. Some people have a misconception that you can't improve both simultaneously. 
but to actually reach, you know, the pinnacle of your uh, potential in both would be challenging at best. I would agree. And you could say, you know, there is this uh, uh, an interference effect has been hypothesized between resistance exercise training and endurance exercise training. And the literature is somewhat split as to whether there is truly an interference effect. But from a physiological or you want to even think about it, a genetic signaling perspective or what have you. But on a more pragmatic basis, I mean, you only have so much, you know, time and energy available to train. So you can't, uh, you know, be all things to all people at all times. So even if it's simply from a practical perspective, you couldn't uh, max out both of them. And yeah, from a, you know, success perspective too, you have to decide where your, uh, where your bread is buttered. Um, I have a time trialist's power profile and I realized that early on that my only way to get results in races was to be in breakaways and I never did a sprint workout from that point forward. Yep. There's just no point. Whereas for most people, it is, you know, train your weaknesses, race your strengths. I think that if you're out at the fringes, either as a sprinter or as a time trialist, it's, you know, train your strengths and race your strengths <laughs> is your best route to success. And I date myself. I think about Marty Notstein. Would Marty Notstein be an Olympic medalist if he had decided, oh, I'm going to be a criterium racer? Remember, he did. He did decide. He tried. Yeah. yeah. Afterwards, he, he tried to become, and yeah. he wasn't really Nearly successful. successful. Yeah. yeah. But instead, he said, no, I'm here. I'm going to be a sprinter, and, you know, I got an Olympic gold medal from the velodrome to show for it. So. So there's only so much you can change yourself. It goes back to that thing of if you are genetically made to be a sprinter, you're probably never going to be the best time trialist in the world. And if you're genetically, if your phenotype yeah. is more the time trialist, you're, you're not going to be winning the big field sprints no matter what you do. Yeah. What is the saying? A leopard can't change its spots? Yeah. A leopard can't change its spots. To a degree, you have what you have. But let's get back to the show and talk about how winning is often more about learning to use what you have. There's another layer to it when it comes to races, which is how much of that VLMX can you actually utilize? And this is a whole new discussion then, or partly a whole new discussion, because then it goes back to things like buffering capacity, for example, or activation. Think about doing, let's say, a training camp, two, two weeks, easy base training, right? How good can you activate yourself? without one week of tapering or leg openers, right? So these are other questions to address, like having that ability, having that VLMX, but being able to utilize it or maximize the utilization of it, like to give a practical example, in a three-minute all-out effort, how much of your VLMX can you use? Because now this is where it comes really interesting. If you remember, we said the lower VLMX means higher endurance performance. So if you are not purely after being a faster sprinter and you're looking to improve your two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, whatsoever, like these mid-range power outputs, right? Then it's not only the question, what is your VLMX, but it's also the question, how much of that can you use, right? You can have a VLMX, let's say, of 0.5 and use only 50% of it, which, uh, or you can have a VLMX of 0.4, which buys you a higher threshold, it buys you a higher fat max and buys you more uh, carbohydrate sparing, but then maybe use 80% of that. And this is a, that is a very, very important um, you know, thing to remember when it comes to performing in a race. 
So what are ways to train yourself to be able to use more of your VLA max? Well, excellent question. Um, it comes down to the activation, right? Like, like we just said, activation of glycolysis, prime example, go out, do two weeks of base training and, uh, and try to raise heart. You will not succeed. Do the same thing, but put a week of pacing, uh, of, of tapering and, and leg openers in between, and you have a good chance to, to be you know, uh, much, much better in the race. And then it comes down to things like uh, buffering capacity or everything associated maybe also with lactate transportation, lactate shuttling, right? These kind of things get very, very important, which then describe the ability to write above threshold, to write in hard effort, which then you know, it goes back a little bit to our discussion about VLMX versus uh, what prime or FRC. It's not only the energy system. What defines your FRC or W prime is also how much you can use this, right? How long can you stay at VO2 max? How, how, which, which percentage of, v, of VLMX can you utilize? That's a big thing that can differentiate people quite a lot. You can have somebody with a VLMX of 0.3 or two riders can have the same VLMX and one is able to come to a lactate concentration of only eight and the other one keeps riding and arrives at 13 millimoles. No problem. Happens. So this gets back to every time we've had a pro on this show or almost every time they have said, don't just focus on your peak numbers. Don't just focus on how much you can, how, what sort of wads you can put out for five minutes or five seconds. They keep hammering repeatability, repeatability, repeatability. It's that ability to keep putting out that power. And it sounds like that's part of what you're talking about. You might have a, a great BLA max, but if you have no repeatability, by the time you get to the end of that race and you've gone up 20 climbs and tried to counter 10, 15 attacks, you're going to have nothing left. Is, is that basically what part of what no, you're saying? No, that's exactly part of the story. That's exactly part of the story. What what do you have? Like, what are your capacities or uh, power or functions? What are your biological system? How much can you use of it? And how much can you use it, like you say, repetitively, for example? Which brings back the question, for example, how quickly can you recover from, you know, something like a lactate accumulation? Uh, how quickly can you recover? And at what power output can you recover from a hard effort? And this is a huge differentiator between athletes, it's 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 in a practical application. It's a tremendous difference if you know when when you do a, a, like a very hard, not saying all out, but a very hard four minute effort, and then being able to recover within five minutes at a power output of three hundred watts for, for for a professional, or having to recover for eight minutes at a power output of two hundred fifty watts. That changes everything in the race and. You know, if I may add this, this is something we have been, sorry, I always go back to that. This is something we have been looking at uh, since Hyro times, what we call the lack of pyruvate or the, yeah, the, 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 the net lactate combustion rate as a function of power output. And there you see tremendous differences between riders. There are examples where you have a rider with the same threshold power, and this is exactly what you're saying. Don't focus only on the numbers. You can have two riders with the exact same threshold at the same body weight, so the same relative threshold. And what happens above and below threshold is tremendously different, meaning one rider riding above threshold accumulates lactate faster, accumulates fatigue faster, and you know, um, yeah, and then is, isn't able to, to ride, let's say, whatever, 40% above threshold for a long time. And another rider is maybe able to ride 
much, much longer at the same percentage or the same power output above threshold, and then maybe is also able to recover much faster. That is certainly something that 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 happens. I just mentioned, I guess, that when Tony Martin turned to to Jumbo, uh, they were surprised on how slow on sl how slow his lactate accumulation would happen once he's riding above threshold, as a marker, as a as a valid marker for how quickly or how slowly fatigue is happening riding above threshold, and then how quickly, how fast he is able to recover at a high power output from that, again, small accumulation of lactate. And we've done some calculations that you're looking, to give you some, some real-world numbers, you're looking at, for the same rider with the same threshold power, you're looking at, for the same effort, for the same kind of accumulation of fatigue, you're looking at differences of 30 to 40% in recovery rate. So 30 to 40% longer or shorter time at the same power output to recover from that effort. Right. And that's everything when it comes down to bike racing. So I'm going to take a quick step back because you just gave a great explanation of why a, a lot of athletes periodize their season the way they do. Um, and certainly the way I coach my athletes is during the base season, we spend a ton of time building that aerobic engine. I agree with pros that repeatability is critical, but I'm also going to say if your threshold's 200 watts, you're going to get popped in that first five-minute climb. So it really doesn't matter how quickly you can recover because you're out of the race. So first get that aerobic engine up because without it, everything else is pointless. But then that's why athlete, you know, your, your pros and a lot of your, your cyclists, as they get closer to that season, you see them doing intervals like over-unders. You see them doing things like Tabatas, which are those 40 seconds on, 20 seconds off, or you don't get enough time to, to recover because that's where they're training that ability to do a big effort and recover from it and then do the effort again and then recover right. from it. So it's build that engine up. Yeah. So this filling it up, and then and then these tabaters or over unders. That's like you know talking about lactate shuttling, lactate transportation. That's also talking about buffering capacities. Um, it might even have an effect on oxygen kinetics. So have your aerobic system adapt faster. That's another aspect of of the performance here, right? Um, which can be really important. And if I may add to this, is first building up the engine is something also very important because something we didn't talk about is that the influence on something like the VLA max increases with VO2 max. So just like you say, if your FTP is 200 watts or pretty low for whatever it's, you know, body weight you, you're having, then you don't even need, really need, need, to, need to worry that much about the VLA max because the influence of VLA max on the performance on the endurance performance, on the race performance, again, increases with the VO2 max. So the higher the VO2 max, once you are above 55, 60, 65, whatever, so the higher it goes, biologically, physiologically, the influence of the VLA max increases. So whatever you do there in terms of going up and up or down with VLA max by training, the effect that has on your endurance performance increases with increasing VO2 max. And that's something, like you say, which is in the professional world, it's highly important. So you don't really need to care about all these things if you don't have the engine. We've been talking a lot about VLA max, how to lower it, how to raise it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How do I determine it? As I briefly mentioned, to determine VLA max, one thing that happened about, I think it's almost 15, 20 years ago, which, which is one part which, which, which brought me into professional cycling was the development of a sprint test on the ergometer to measure VLA max and then validate the sprint test and 
check if it's if it's accurate by by using muscle biopsies. So traditionally, traditionally what we what we have been doing over the past 10, 12, 15 years is doing lab-based sprint tests to have a very accurate uh, measurement of VLMX. That's one way to do it. The other way to do it is to calculate it, to calculate it based on other lactate measurements, to calculate it based on you know, lactate measurements, VO2max measurements. I think it doesn't make sense to really go into the, into the mathematics uh, of that here. That's, that's another way, and that's a way that how it has been done in swimming, for example, very, very successfully for more than 10 years also. Calculating VLMX is a, is a very, very valid, valid way to do it. And then lately, which means over the past three, four years maybe, from the need of virtual cycling for not being able to go into a lab regularly, what ended up, uh, what what it has become is also being able to calculate it very accurately based on on a series of maximum power output efforts. So like maximum sprint efforts and four minute and several time durations effort like similar like you like like you would do like you want to determine your max power for one minute for 10 seconds for whatsoever it has become possible to also calculate it very accurately from those kind of efforts but obviously only in cycling because you need you need the power meter so traditionally it's it's always linked to um to lactate measurements and again started in the lab and then just lately became more possible to do it at least in cycling even without lactate measurement. However, one thing people tend to forget is that you always need to have an idea about the body composition because lactate is millimoles per liter. It takes into account how much water you have in your body. So you always need to have an, a, at least an idea if you have rather high water content because you have a low fat percentage, but a high muscle percentage, or if you have a little bit less water because you maybe have less muscle, but more, uh, more fat, so to speak. But these are very broadly high level explaining how it historically happened in cycling and in swimming and more or less what it is today. And Chris and I have always said we're not going to promote anything we don't believe in, but we'll give a plug where a plug is deserved. And, and your business inside um, has a very elegant way to, to give riders these numbers doing just on the road testing. Right. Yeah. I mean, as you, I didn't, I didn't want to give you the pitch. You say no, pitch here. I appreciated but, that, uh, but I think you deserve it. So I'm, I'm <laughs> going to give it to you for you. So, so yeah. Basically, what what we have been doing, you know, what what has been done in the world of professional swimming and the world of professional cycling for the past decades has has now become a software package where where coaches can measure or determine or calculate whatever way of testing you choose, either in the lab or in the field, either with lactate or without lactate, to determine things like VO2max and VLMX very precisely. And um, this is how now it also gets spread out over the World Tour teams. You have to imagine that some things, for example, we were not allowed to to promote a lot at high road times. Like we used, for example, this concept for pacing strategies and time trials to understand the metabolism time trial and create pacing strategies. And that's something we were never really allowed to show at high road times. We were allowed to show how what we do with, with, with ice baths after the race and with nutrition and so on and so forth. And now 
these days is getting spread out a little bit more. We have teams like Bora and Jumbo Visma, and we have some more other virtual teams currently using it, but it's not it's not public. So it's spreading out more to the world of triathlon to several federations. And again, it all goes back to these validation studies we talked about using muscle biopsies and so on and so forth. All right, Sebastian. So uh, we'll put you on the clock. You've done this before in our last episode. You know how it goes. You've got one minute to summarize and and give all of our listeners the the key takeaways from what we've discussed today. So the quick summary is you need to understand or you want to start with two things. You want to start at understanding what you want to do in terms of races, what kind of races you're looking at and which parts you want to play in this race. What, what's your tactics, uh, so to speak? And then from there, you want to understand, okay, what is the VLMX that I need? What is the minimum VLMX that I have to have? And then train for that, check it. Is it where you want to have it? And from there, create a training program where you control how the progression is going and if the VLMX develops either up or down in the direction that you want. And then maybe during the season, change your approach for the one race. You may want a lower one. For the other race, you may want a higher one. Trevor, you've got a minute. What else would you like to add? So what I really love about the, the way you frame things is I think too many athletes, when they're, they're thinking about their training, are too focused on, I'm just trying to raise my numbers. How high can I get my five-minute power? How high can I get my 20-minute power? And it's just seen as this, you can improve everything if you just train hard enough or, or train right. I like to think of it, and this is how you've been expressing it, as more like a seesaw. Except this isn't just a two-seated seesaw. This is a 10-seated, horrible-looking seesaw where some of the seats are ejector seats. And <laughs> anything you do is going to have impacts on the whole thing. You raise one side, another side is going to come down. You sit on the ejector sheet, and you're going to find yourself on your butt in the road. So when you're thinking about training, and sorry, I just went with a silly analogy, but when you think about training, think about it as everything affects everything else. And sometimes improving one thing comes at a cost of another thing. So see it as more as a balance. Chris? Well, I'm not going to even try to summarize what we talked about today. I just know that there's a good five-minute segment in there that if I've got some insomnia, I can just loop that portion and uh, I'll fall right asleep. Thanks, guys. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at velanews.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. While you're there, check out our sister podcast, the VeloNews Podcast, which covers news about the week in cycling. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash velanews and on Twitter at twitter.com slash velanews. Fast Talk is a joint production between VeloNews and Connor Coaching. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Chris Case, Sebastian Weber, Dr. Steven Seiler, Brent Bookwalter, Hunter Allen, and Dr. Andy Coggan, I'm Trevor Connor. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.